Dear Father, thank you, Father, for your word, where you tell us that you may do and will do more than we could ever think to ask. And Father, how often is it the case that we imagine that you won't even do what we ask? How often is it, Father, that we doubt you and we wonder if you're even listening? And yet you tell us plainly, think as big as you want and you will do more. Maybe not what we ask, maybe something different, because, Father, your wisdom exceeds ours infinitely, but you'll do what you believe is best for us to a degree beyond anything we could imagine. We thank you, Father, for that grace, for that mercy. We thank you that you're preparing us for something. We know something's coming, Father. Opportunities, challenges, trials, and perhaps disappointments. But what's coming, Father, is to our own benefit, that we might mature into the full measure of Christ that we might be more like him, even as we strive to serve and please him. So, Father, help us with what we learned tonight. Give us something here, Father. There's, there's something in this word tonight that will reach some heart, or every heart, tonight, so that we might serve you better in the days ahead, but only if we listen. So I pray, Father, we're listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 13, back to... Kingdom Program 101. This is the training that Jesus is giving his disciples about what's going to take place after he's gone. It's certainly our program as well. It's the church's mission. And it is specifically a program of recruiting men and women around the world to become citizens of a kingdom that's not here yet. One day they will walk into it with us by placing faith in Christ. We become citizens of that future kingdom. And when Jesus returns, we will enter together with him. Now that plan is what we know well, but it is very different from the plan that Jesus' followers expected to come about as a result of Jesus' arrival. They thought the Messiah's arrival would mean that Israel would receive that physical kingdom in their day, and that it would initiate at that time a literal, physical kingdom with Jesus ruling from Jerusalem. Now had they accepted his proposal, well then yeah, that's exactly what would have happened in their day. But because they refused the kingdom proposal, where we stand now is that offer has been withdrawn, as you know, and in its place, Jesus initiates this program, which now essentially is the church. And he spends the final months of his life on earth training up these men who are following him for this new and unexpected mission. And in the chapter that we've entered now, chapter 13, Matthew is introducing this dramatic shift to us, this shift from what had been a proposal to now what is a program. And he does it with seven parables, one right after another, about the kingdom. They're like coded messages, and that's because they're only intended for the disciples, because they involve kingdom work, which is only appropriate for a disciple of Jesus. And we all play a part in this work. This is literally a call on the heart of every believer who's ever walked since Jesus. It's a program of building a spiritual kingdom. Kind of a strange, unexpected, mysterious movement of the Spirit. We just call it Christianity. But it's this idea that people around the world are going to be called out of darkness. They're going to respond in faith to a Jesus they've never seen before. And we take this for granted, right? I'm I'm describing this like it's new, and we're sitting there thinking, well, I knew this coming in. But you need to understand, this is radical stuff. It was radical then, and I think it's still kind of mind-blowing now when you think about it, that God is out there moving in His Spirit, invisibly, taking people out of darkness, making them part of the kingdom, and from the outside, there's no evidence of anything. There's no tangible proof of that. It's just an internal change that we know and feel and understand. So the seven parables that are in this chapter kick off this training program. We started last week with the first of these. If you were here last week, I hope you saw something you hadn't seen before. The sower and the seed parable 
that opens this chapter is so well known. I think it's too well known. I think people miss the main point. And what we learned last week is that the kingdom program is going to spread. And what will propel it across the earth is the Word of God. That is Christ's appointed tool to move the kingdom call outward. And now in that parable, you had the farmer who was just distributing the seed just casually, randomly, all over the place, without reservation. But wherever it landed, it produced a certain result according to the will of God. Reminds me of what Isaiah says, My word will go forth from my mouth, it will not return to me empty, without accomplishing what I desire, and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. That's the power of the Word of God. You know, that's why this church exists, fundamentally. That's why I thought this church should exist. Because we wanted a church in which we had the confidence to say that if I just preach the Word, good things are going to happen. I don't even have to figure out what it is. I don't even have to make it happen. The Word of God will not go out without returning, having accomplished what God has set forth for it. That's powerful stuff. And the Lord says that the Word is going to go out yielding a variety of results in the hearts of the world. And we're not charged with fixing that problem. The fact that the seed falls in some places that does not take root is not our problem. The farmer is not going to go improving his methodology so as to harvest more. The focus on the parable was on the plants that grew but didn't produce fruit. Christians have to make a goal of living up to the expectations that came with your faith. And Jesus expects us to join in the work of the kingdom program. We're supposed to produce a crop, the parable told us, one that is greater than just ourselves. We should be multiplying hundredfold if possible. Those Christians who do not produce fruit in this way, I call condition three Christians because it's the third condition of the four in that parable. As Luke wrote, these are the ones who are choked off by the worries and riches and pleasures of this life and so fail to produce fruit. That is not what Jesus expects, right? We can say this plainly. He says at the end of Luke's version of that parable that no one lights a lamp and then puts it under a blanket. That is to say, the Lord didn't put His light in us by His Spirit so as to expect us to hide it behind a fleshly, worldly lifestyle. Right? That doesn't serve Him any purpose. Instead, let's let our light shine before men so that they may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. All right, That's the point of last week, but it's only the first thing in this chapter. That leads us to our second lesson in the kingdom program. That's found in our second parable, verse 24. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go out and gather them up? But he said, No, for while you're gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First, gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up. But gather the wheat into my barn. All right, here we have a second parable. And it's got a similar setting to the first one we studied last week. And so the symbolism, to an extent, will carry over. Not all of it, but some of it. So here again, you have a story of sowing seed. Uh, Now, though, you have a landowner, and this landowner actually takes a prominent role in this story. If you remember in the first one, I said the farmer is insignificant and uh, incidental to the parable in the first case. But here, he is central to the storyline. 
The master's servants go out, they sow his field for him, they use good seed, it says, and then while they're sleeping, there's an enemy who gets into the land, and he tries to sabotage this crop. He enters into the land, and he sows it with bad seed, it says, with tares. Now, the Greek word used here for tares, zizanion in Greek, it's literally the word for darnel. A darnel, a darnel is a kind of weed. It's actually a European rye grass. And when a darnel first sprouts, it looks exactly like a new shoot of wheat. You could not tell them apart if you were in the field, which is, of course, the point of the parable. And that's obviously what the enemy was hoping to do. He was literally sowing confusion in that field. And his intent was this. By putting the grass in the field amongst where the wheat has been planted, he wants to introduce competition for the resources. He wants to put a plant in the field that will suck up the nutrients, suck up the water, shade the other plants, and as such, it will restrict the production of the wheat, the production of the fruit. He's trying to hurt the man's crop. And that reminds us a little bit of the third condition in the prior parable, right? Remember what the third condition was? That was this, the plant that, that grew up in a field with other weeds and thorns, and it chokes off the production of that plant from producing fruit. Do you think it's a coincidence that the next parable he teaches has that same theme? Of course not. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Verse 27, the slaves, when they wake up, they take note of the fact that there's something growing in the field they didn't plant. And they ask the master, how could this be so? How could there be bad plants coming up amongst the good plants? The master says, well, we have this enemy who was out there. And so the slaves say, well, I'll go out there and fix that for you. Let me pull all those up. And the master objects here. And he says that if you go out and try to do this, you're going to inevitably make some mistakes. You're going to pull up some of what is good seed, what are actually wheat plants. And here's the thing. If I'm already worried about my wheat production because of the choking off of all these tares... Well, the last thing I want you to do is pull up yet again more wheat and reduce my production all the more. So he says, no, i got a better idea. We're going to let the tares and the wheat share the field for a time. They're going to grow up together. But as they continue to grow up, he says, there will be a distinction at some point. There will be a point in which the tares and the wheat are clearly known one to another. Because at harvest time, the wheat plants will have seed, the tares will not. And a tear or a darnel, when it grows, it just keeps looking like grass. It just gets bigger and bigger, but it's still grass. Whereas eventually, the wheat plant starts to take on a different appearance. It forms stalks, stalks have seed on them, and so on. So at the harvest, it'll be no problem at all to go out and know which one is which, pull up the right one, save it, pull up the other one, burn it. All right, there's your second parable. But like the first parable... We know it's saying something about the kingdom, because that's the way Jesus introduced it. Look at verse 24. He says, this is a parable about the kingdom program. It may be compared to a man sowing a a field with good seed. Sorry. So, we have two parables. And based on these two parables, you can already see that there's something about this kingdom program that is very similar to sowing to growing, to harvesting. These are terms that are going to tell us a lot about what it's like to serve Christ in this time. So in literal terms, what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about a program of recruiting citizens for the kingdom. Going to people, telling them about Jesus, through our words or through our life, and as a result, seeing interest that turns into faith that becomes then the opportunity for that person to join the kingdom. That program we just learned in this second parable will be opposed. It will be opposed by a powerful enemy who wants to limit production. He wants to limit production. 
Just like the first parable, though, as we see this parable coming together, the disciples in that day, as they heard it, did not understand it. They may have gotten a little sense of it, but they were not sure of what he meant. And so they eventually have to go to Jesus again and ask him in private, could you give us what this really means? Tell us what this means. Now, if you look down on your page, that request comes in verse 36. And then after that, Jesus gladly interprets it for them. But we're not at verse 36 yet. So before we get to that moment, he gives two more parables. And what he's doing here is he's already answering their question, in effect, before they ask it. Because these two additional parables, they're short and they are not accompanied by interpretation. They are actually elaborating on the larger parables. So in order for us to follow the train of thought, let's do them in order. Let's look at these additional parables before we try to make sense, more sense of the first one. Let's go to verse 31. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. All right, well, these are getting increasingly inscrutable, right? Because now the details are getting simpler, but yet that simplicity makes it harder for us to parse it out. What is he talking about here? Verse 31, he starts uh, the third parable with another agricultural motif. This time, though, he's talking about a mustard plant. Now, mustard is not the thing that comes in the yellow bottle in the grocery store. Mustard is an herb. It's a plant. And there are a lot of different mustard varieties in the world. But the kind of mustard that's native to the Middle East, which would have been the kind growing here in this case, is considerably taller than other herbs, than other, as Jesus says, other garden plants here. And that's the issue here. He's talking in comparison to garden plants. He's not talking in comparison to all plants. All right? The mustard plant of the Middle East grows to about 10 feet tall at most. That's pretty tall but it's not the tallest tree you've ever seen. That's not the point. The point is, what do most herbs look like? How about this tall? All right, you have a bunch of herbs in your garden, and then you've got a mustard plant that's 10 feet tall. That's the comparison he's making. But the seed of that plant is very small. It's about the size of a BB, about this big. So here you have this contrast. You have this very small BB-sized seed that results in this very impressive, disproportionately large plant as a result. All right, that's something to say about the kingdom program. Here, here again, we're not sure exactly what he's trying to say, right? Look at verse 33. He teaches a companion parable. And this one helps elaborate again on this point that I say he's making. He says the kingdom can be compared to leaven, or let's call it yeast, that a woman hid, he says, in three pecks of flour until it was completely Leaven. Now, we finally walked away, to some extent, from an agricultural motif. We're not planting plants anymore. Now we're looking at flour being made into dough and, and so on. But you notice there's a comparison between this one and the prior one that's very similar. The structure is very similar because you have this moving from small things to big things again in this third parable. Yeast, if you didn't know, is a microscopic plant. And when you put it in dough... It's activated by the warmth and the moisture in that dough, and it begins to reproduce. And as it reproduces, it gives off carbon dioxide, gas. And that gas is what causes the, the dough to expand and rise and makes it fluffy when you cook it, when you bake it. 
Alright, eventually, because of the, the reproduction of the yeast plant inside the dough, it reaches to every area of the dough, not just to where it started. So, what was small, and as Jesus said, hidden in that dough initially, eventually spreads to every corner and makes its presence known. And so now you can make a comparison to the mustard plant parable. In the mustard plant example, you had something starting very small, insignificant, almost invisible, like yeast in dough, like a tiny seed you can barely even see. And at the end you have something that you can't miss, that's so large, disproportionately so, that it makes itself known. You can't miss a 10-foot tree in in a garden full of small plants, and you can't miss the rising action of the dough compared to where the lump began. So we have three parables so far on the nature of the kingdom program. And although the meaning of the three we've studied tonight may not be entirely clear yet, you may begin to think you know what he's talking about. And perhaps you do. But let me ask you this or say this to you. If you think you know what he's talking about, it's because you have 2,000 years of church history behind you to help explain it to you. I would challenge you if you could go back 2,000 years and read this for the first time, it would be a lot harder. And even now, you might be wondering of some of what it's saying. Well, the disciples were certainly mystified. And again, this was intentional. Look at verse 34. He says, All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. I'm not going to beat this drum again. We've studied this now for several weeks. It's enough to simply mention it as we come by, that Jesus was only speaking to the crowds in parables at this point because they had rejected him. And his message then was coded for receipt only by the disciples. But the irony is even the disciples missed it. But the difference is he was willing to explain it to them. He was willing to go to the extra step and make sure they understood. And for us as well, he is still doing that by his spirit. And... I'm going to help us do that tonight. Let's stitch all this together. Why don't we? Beginning with that explanation of the first parable, which starts in verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the terrors of the field. And he said, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. Now he'll give more here for a minute, but let's just try to do a little observation. You see the disciples, I love this at the beginning, the disciples struggling to follow his teaching. I always take some encouragement in that, as you might imagine. Anytime I see someone who is that close to Jesus, walking with him daily, still struggling to understand him, well, look, we shouldn't be surprised when we sometimes come out of the Bible and we're not all clear on what it says. That's okay. But notice also he gladly gives them the answer. This isn't a test. It's not a puzzle that he wants them to struggle with. His goal is not confusion. He wants them to understand it. They ask, he tells them. You know, next time you're reading the Bible and you don't understand something, try that. Jesus, could you explain this to me? And then just wait and see what happens. You might be surprised how often an answer comes. All right, in this one, he starts his explanation with what is the most important detail. He did this same thing when he taught the first parable of the chapter. Remember, the sower, the seed, when he gets to the explanation, he says, the seed is the word of God. And here he does something similar. He opens with what is most important here. He says here, what is most important? The one who sows. Jesus himself. Now, in that earlier parable, the first one of the chapter, the sower and the seed, you had the seed go out. Sometimes it produced new life. 
Sometimes it didn't. And among those that did have new life, sometimes it produced fruit, sometimes it didn't. Remember? And here you have a slightly different take on that moment. Because here you see the Lord sowing, but notice He only sows seed that results in new life. You notice that? His seed is the good seed. And the good seed, he says, are believers, the sons of the kingdom. The bad seed represents unbelievers in the world, in the field, which he said is the world. And they are sown by their father, the devil. Jesus has taken the focus of the first parable. I want you to see how he did this. He took the focus of the first parable, and he has narrowed it down, and he has essentially zoomed in on conditions three and four. What he did with the first parable is he said, let me explain to you how the Word of God is going to deal or how it's going to work in the world generally. It's going to go everywhere. It's going to go indiscriminately. It's going to cover the whole earth. Some are going to believe. Some are not. Some are going to produce fruit. Some are not. But let's get back to what really matters. Let's narrow down to that group of believers for a second. Let's talk about three and four a little bit more. And let's explain why it is that among all who will receive the word and have new life and be born again, why is it that some don't produce fruit? Because that's an interesting dilemma, if you think about it. Same word, same Lord, same spirit, but not all the same result. That's an interesting dilemma. What could explain that? That question is captured by the servants in the parable, who say, how could it be that you would have gone out and planted anything other than good seed? And the answer is, well, it's not my fault. There's an enemy at work. And this parable introduces the idea of several things to complement or accentuate our understanding of that condition three and condition four problem that we looked at last week. The first of these is this idea of time, of a season, of a period in which this kingdom program will operate on earth. You notice he talks about the world as our field, and he says there'll be a time of growing and a time of, of, of planting, but harvesting waits to the end. Harvesting waits to the end. And he says this growing of both wheat and tares must continue uninterrupted until the harvest time. Now, for most of you, I'm sure you know that harvesting is a classic picture in the scripture, of a judgment from God, that God would come and harvest or judge the world. And we see that clearly in verse 39, because as Jesus explains this parable, he says, the harvest is the end of the age. He says it plainly. Now, an age in the Bible is a long but finite period of time, a period of history. Ages are determined by God. God sets the beginning of them, and He sets the end of them, based on world events, major events that are dictated according to God's plan. The book of Daniel tells us that we are currently in an age that began long ago, back in the time of Babylon and Israel. And Daniel also tells us that this age that we are still among right now, part of right now, that age will not end until the second coming of Christ. Now, if some of this is of interest to you and you aren't as familiar with what the Bible teaches on these things, I've got some good news for you. Because in September, we start the book of Revelation here on Tuesday nights. And you can come and listen and learn. Meanwhile, the Bible says that ages come and go. An age ends to begin a new age. And the one that we're in now will end with the second coming of Christ. That is the harvest that Jesus is talking about here. At the harvest, that is at His return to this earth, to rule and set up his physical kingdom, he says, there will also be a judgment. And he will send out, he says, his angels at this moment, at his second coming, 
to separate, as it were, the wheat from the tares in the field of the world. Or in other words, at the end of this age, believers and unbelievers on earth will, for the first time, be completely separated. Only then will they be in their own worlds, individually, separate from one another, not mixing anymore. But until the end of the age, and until the harvest, they're going to be mixing. And there's no plan by God to separate them. We do not need to put little communes together out in the woods and fence ourselves off so as to separate ourselves from all of the tares. That's not what the Master wanted. He says, let them grow together until I separate them. Because how do we influence a world that we separate ourselves from, right? That's counterproductive. Now, I want you to notice how Jesus describes this moment of the harvest that he just talked about, this end-of-the-age moment. Uh, It comes in verse 40. He says, So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks, those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. So the moment he's describing here, he's, he's sort of tantalizing, right? He gives you just a little bit, and you're kind of getting into it, and it's just over before you know it. What he's talking about here is the last moments of this age, right before the next age begins, the kingdom begins, when he's, when he's come back to earth. And I'll tell you from my own study, and you'll have a chance to study this with me in Revelation, but at the time that these things happen, the earth is in utter turmoil. Jesus returns into a world that has just seen a seven-year period of literally hell on earth. A sequence of supernatural judgments that God has poured out on the earth in preparation for this end. And they are things that the world has never seen. They are unequaled by anything that has ever come on this earth since or will ever come after, the Bible says. And before that time, before any of that even starts, the church will have been removed from the earth. And those who have remained, many of them, will have died in the judgments that come. I mean, this is just unimaginable... Uh, from our perspective, and if you're a little worried that you don't want to hear more, let me assure you that there is a good ending to this, and you should come and hear all of it later. We're going to get into some of this in the Revelation course, but we're also going to look at this in, in Matthew, because in Matthew 24, Jesus comes back to this topic in a big way. All right, putting all that aside for a moment. Those who remain at that point, at the moment of the harvest, Jesus said, will be clearly divided into God's people and into the enemy's forces. And in that chaotic moment, As Jesus returns, a light out of the darkness, he says, he brings his angels in, and he says to his angels, let's clean this up, my words, and he says, let's get the believing, and let's bring them to me, and let's take the unbelieving, and let's move them to their future home, the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then and only then, he says, will we be clear in who is who? Only then will there be no doubt where everyone lands. But until that time, the two worlds coexist, And in fact, they will be difficult, if not impossible, to tell apart at times. You ever thought about that? How do you really know who's Christian? Now, I know there's some things we can look for. I know the Bible talks about the fruit of the believer, and certainly we look for confession, and there are some indications, and for the most part, those might be accurate in the case for many. But look, let's be honest, a person's heart cannot be fully known. A person's heart cannot be fully known, only by their fruit Do we see any indication of what goes on in their heart? And people are good at faking fruit. And you know what helps unbelievers fake fruit at times? The low standards we have for fruit. 
I mean, how hard is it to be a Christian in this day and age? It's a lot harder in persecution, by the way. It's a lot harder when there's a real price to be paid for your confession. But in this day and age, I mean, we don't check your Christian card at the door. We don't ask anything of anyone who comes in here, and I'm not saying we should. I'm just saying, given that that's the culture and the circumstances in which we minister, really, who really knows? Who really knows who is a believer except Christ? The full measure of our standing in Christ, I'm not saying you can't know for yourself. I'm saying, how do you know about other people? And the full measure, Jesus says, will only be known at the end of this age. And in the meantime... There will be this norm of two worlds mixing, one to influence the other, hopefully, but in the meantime, a bit of confusion around that. Spiritual warfare will be the norm. We will be rubbing elbows with our enemy. Now, I'm sure for Jesus' disciples, what he just said would have been probably the most surprising thing in all of the parables so far. That is, this idea that there would be a period of time in which the kingdom program reaches to the world, and yet we're not exactly clear who's who. We kind of know, but we're not perfect in that knowledge. Why is that so hard? Oh, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of a first century Jew. What did they know from their point of view? Well, prior to Christ, the spiritual haves and have-nots were abundantly clear. Because God's people were Jewish, and Gentiles were dogs, and there was no confusing one for the other. And the notion that now, going forward, God's children and Satan's children are going to be difficult to distinguish at times, that is mind-blowing for a Jew. How is that even possible? Not only are these two groups going to be hard to identify, but they're actually going to, to have to live with one another so that the work of the kingdom can be done. Remember back in Matthew 7, Jesus said, Not all who say, Lord, Lord, actually know Him. Well, that's because tares look a lot like wheat. That is to say, unbelievers can mimic the claims and even the behaviors of Christians. And how many people, I bet bet if I took a poll in here, we got some already in this room. How many people could tell a story of being a spouse to a believer, and they went that way for years, and then later it became apparent to both of them that one of them was not a believer? But because the wife drags the husband to church, or the husband takes the wife to church and you just do that as a habit and no one really talks about what they really believe and next thing you know you got this couple that is doing all this church stuff and one of them doesn't even know the lord i have met people like that it's you know thankfully on the other side of them coming to faith but you hear the stories and you realize it's just amazing we didn't actually sit down and say honey what do you believe we just go to church And if you have a church that doesn't teach the Bible, well, it's a lot easier to be an unbeliever sitting in that pew for years on end because there's nothing happening up here to challenge it, right? All right, here's where we're going here. Remember, the problem of this parable is that the seed that was sown was good, yet other seed was added that can't be distinguished. And the main point is verse 29. The master says, do not uproot the wheat. Now remember, the problem with having tares in the field is that it chokes off the production of the wheat. For that reason, under normal circumstances, a farmer would have weeded his field. Would you not have weeded your own garden? You know, you don't stop and think about that detail long enough. It was a weird thing that the master said, no, don't weed my garden. Because it would have been helpful. Yeah, you might have lost a little wheat. But in the long run, you're going to get a lot more production over the ones that remain. It's actually odd that he says this. Why was that his answer? Well, it's because the master was unwilling to lose even a single wheat plant. 
Not one would be lost. In other words, the master cared more for the life of each of those wheat plants than he did for the overall production of seed in his field. You and I are those wheat stocks, right? The believers, the sons of the kingdom, he says. And Christ's primary focus in planting the field of this world is to bring sons to glory, sons and daughters to glory. And as he says in John 6, 637, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me I lose nothing, but raise up on the last day. So Christ is determined that none of those the Father has given him would ever be uprooted, so to speak. And what that means is he has to tolerate tares in the meantime. But you know what it also means? It means he's willing to accept the losses that come with it, which is less production. He knows that by putting his children into the world filled with tares, it means that a lot of us, for different reasons, are going to be less productive than we would have if we had grown up in a world that was 100% believers. Less productive in the sense that the enemy wouldn't have been there challenging our production like he is. Last week Jesus says, those Christians who fail to produce fruit are those who are distracted and troubled by the world. He says they are the ones who are weighed down by the worries and riches and pleasures of this life. Remember that also convicting phrase, right? As a result, these are Christians that neglect their walk with Christ, that is, They fail to devote the time and the energy to the work of the kingdom. And as a result, they don't produce fruit. They don't reproduce. And now you're learning that those outcomes are the direct result of the scheme of the enemy. And I want to wake you up to this if it's not already something you're aware of. He is the one out there planting bad seed. Now what that means in this context is this. The, The unbelievers are already out there, right? It's not like they had to be made. Everyone who comes out of the womb, by default, is a child of the enemy. right? You have to be born again to get into God's family. Okay? And this is not a parable that says he's out there putting these people in the earth. What he's saying is the the enemy is out there putting these bad seeds in your field, in your life. All right? We're talking about people who come into your life, whether personally or just indirectly, and they create these distractions. They suck energy out of your life, spiritually speaking. We're talking about that ungodly friend that you keep close contact with and they keep tempting you into bad habits or a return to old bad routines and you just can't cut it off. That's a tear in your life. Literally, as the parable would explain it. Or that technology guru that you've never met, you don't know him except that he's a big famous person on the internet, but his inventions have entrapped and distracted you and they are stealing your time and money. That's a tear in your life if it's getting in the way of your production. That Hollywood producer who fills your head with vile or lewd images, all of these are bad seed sown by the enemy with a purpose in the hope of choking off fruit. And it's up to us how far they get into our life. It's up to us whether we resist that or whether we take advantage of it and we lose opportunity to produce fruit. That is the reality of the kingdom program. The enemy works to reduce the Lord's yield, and the Lord allows it because he cares more for you existing in the world than he does uprooting the unproductive Christian and taking you out of the plan of God. This is a direct contradiction to anyone who would suggest that if you fail to do good works, you are repudiated by Christ and can lose your salvation. This is a direct repudiation of that thinking. 
You are more important to Him than your production, but your production also matters. But knowing the truth does not become excuse for you to fail in producing your fruit, by the way. You can't turn around later and say, oh, the devil made me do it. That's why I'm having so much trouble. Rather, I think you will be embarrassed, and and I'm sure I will at some level, when we realize how much we did not resist these schemes, how much we gave in to the enemy. And I get a little angry about this, about myself, when I think about this, because I don't like to see the bad guy win. And it frustrates me to think sometimes I'm letting him win. Why? But to finish tonight, there was still one more thing he wants you to understand. That is, he wants you to understand that you do not worry about the enemy. You do not worry about him gaining on the plan of God or disrupting the plan of God because the enemy is not going to limit the reach of the program. That's what those other two variables told us. Verse 31, the kingdom program will grow... Like a mustard seed grows in a garden. At first, the program of the kingdom is going to seem quite insignificant and small. You know, you had 12 guys, 11 after Judas took his life. That's what Jesus starts this program with. Doesn't seem like much of a movement, right? But in time, it becomes the biggest thing on the planet, as God intended. And I'm sure the disciples would have felt that way initially, thinking they had no hope of challenging the Romans and the Jews, much less Satan. And yet Christ made a way. That will be the progression of the kingdom program. Despite the enemy's efforts to stop it and limit production, it's going to grow until it fills the world. And in fact, you notice it's so big it has birds nesting in the branches. Go back to the first parable. What was the bird a picture of? In the first condition, the seed lands on hard soil, the bird comes and takes it away. Jesus explained that bird to be who? The enemy. The enemy. So the birds, if you keep with the same idea and carry that interpretation forward, then the birds in the tree represent the tares in the field. They are more of this same picture that you're going to get big and you're going to have to deal with the enemy, but he's not going to stop the growth of the tree. In fact, it's the growth of the tree that gives him opportunity to come in. And then verse 33, the second of those smaller parables, he reminds us of our role in this program once more. We are like the yeast. We've been hidden in this world And we are called to reproduce, like yeast does, so that we might propel the growth of the kingdom program. We might push it out, as it were. We're the leaven hidden. And just like leaven, yeast, you are small and insignificant, at least from the world's perspective. But if you reproduce a hundredfold, which is what the first parable told us, the one of the sower and the seed, that's a lot of impact. That's a lot of people down the road who become believers who then turn into producers of new believers and that's all because you did what you were supposed to your faith in christ it's not visible your individual impact not perceivable but if you are a faithful follower of christ you become part of this movement that's invisible within and pushes the gospel out that's god's promise to you yeast ultimately makes itself known because it reproduces that's his call look the enemy wants to rob us of our time and our talent and our treasure not our new life because he knows he can't he's not a fool but he will do what he can to stop you from producing fruit because you know what fruit is it's the next hundredfold of believers you see what that's his mentality i'm not saying he can stop god's program the parables just told us he can't but what he can do is he can stop you do you see that he can't stop the program but he can stop you if you let him But as the Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. We are not accountable for the results of the kingdom. But we are accountable for our own fruit. And he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Father, for the opportunity to hear tonight something we needed to hear. 
I know, Father, we've all served you, and we've probably all been distracted. Perhaps some today are more distracted than others. And, Father, if that's a conviction that you've placed on their hearts tonight by your Spirit, I pray they'd hear it, and I pray they'd act accordingly. But none of us, Father, can leave this room without knowing that there is still more to be done, not in our own power, not by our own wisdom, but by our obedience to your wisdom and your power. So, Father, help us each in our own way. See our lives in a new way tonight. Is our time being devoted to you? Is our talent being utilized? Are our resources, Father, being squandered? And if we can say that we have not done all that we can, Father, please give us the courage and the desire to do better. For, Father, we want to be useful to you. We want to please you. And we want to do it according to your word. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.